Hey there, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show, a podcast for paradigm changers. Each week, I speak with another influential leader who's changing the conversation for their audience, their industry, and this world. I am so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show. Today, we have with us Dr. Mario Martinez, who's a licensed clinical psychologist and proponent of cultural psychoneuroimmunology. Here's why I invited Dr. Martinez onto the show. He is a true pioneer in helping us see how our culture, the fishbowl we live in, has an impact on our health and longevity. He's somebody that has studied a lot of disciplines and pulled them together to offer a more holistic view of our health, our immunology in a cultural context, which we talk a lot about in this episode. What I love about what he's up to is he's looking deeply at our culture and what he calls our cultural editors, those that had profound impact in how we see the world and how that impacts our immunity and health. The same things I look at when it comes to the path we ended up walking in our life and how that became the training program for our life's work and our life's purpose. So we're looking at a lot of the same things, but from a different lens. Dr. Martinez is a world expert in healthy longevity, the author of best-selling books, The Mind-Body Code and The Mind-Body Self. He invented this term biocognition to explain the nature of how the mind is encoded in the body. Biocognitive science integrates psychoneuroimmunology, neuroanthropology, and cultural neuroscience to offer a paradigm shift from reductionist biology to mind-body perception with a cultural brain. He specializes in how culture and transcendental beliefs affect health and longevity. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Welcome. Mario, thank you so much for being here. Um, I got to tell you, Every now and again, I run across someone whose vocabulary and philosophy and approach to their work feels so familiar to me, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, like we're doing the same thing, but in a different way or in a different application uh, applied to maybe a different area of life. Um, And preparing for this, I'm like, wow. We're like brothers, you know. We're, we're we're doing similar work in different ways. So I'm really, really uh, glad to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And it's uh, I I think you uh, you brought up something very interesting, and that is that uh, thought leaders have uh, specific ways of looking at the world and the service that they're going to do and everything. And there's a lot of compatibility in so many different disciplines. Like you're in the business, me in the uh, in the health field. Uh, so it's I'm glad that you uh, you see it that way. Awesome. So there's two areas I want to focus. First, I want to focus on your work, and we'll dedicate roughly the first half of the show to the work. Uh, and then I also want to talk with you about your journey into this work and and being a pioneer in this field and your work as a change agent and paradigm changer. So uh, I think that'll make more sense after we get into the work. So let's start there. At a high level, if you could start by just sharing, yeah, this is what my work's about, what would you say? All right. Well, it's unquestionable now that the mind and the body communicate with each other. I mean, that's, that's, you have to be in a cave not to be able to see that. 
what I'm bringing into science is several things. One is that the mind and the body communicate in a cultural context. So I'm bringing culture into the communication. What is culture? I bring anthropology and into my paradigm. My paradigm is basically psychoneuroimmunology, how thoughts and emotions affect the nervous, immune, and endocrine system. Anthropology, where we come from. Uh, the cultural neuroscience, how does a brain learn culture? So culture, the way to look at it is that there's a world out there with infinite possibilities of being interpreted. And what the culture does is it creates a, a, a weaves a fabric around that world and what you see is a fabric. And what is a fabric? The most important things for survival and for meaning. So aesthetics, ethics, wellness, longevity, all of these other things, that's what a culture is. And what I have found is that Psychoneuroimmunology is not just psychoneuroimmunology. My, my mentor, George Solomon, was the one who came up with the word psychoimmunology, then they call it psychoneuro. What I'm bringing in it is cultural psychoneuroimmunology, so that then the immune system is not just responding to uh, chemicals or to uh, things out there, but is responding to your interpretation of the world. And mm -hmm. then what I wanted to do was, okay, so if... if uh, one thing that's very interesting to me is healthy longevity. I want to be around for a long time, but but healthy. So as a neuropsychologist, I thought I'm going to study what works, which is centenarians, people that are over 100 and are healthy all over the world. But my reductionistic training, looking at the brain, and this is what the brain does, and in gerontology that says as you grow older, you get decrepit, all that, I thought, well, it's got to be genetics. So I start working on this. The last 20 years, I've inter interviewed over 100 centenarians. And I found that it's not genetics. Genetics is only 20 to 25%. So I identified four factors that we'll talk about that actually, independent of, of where they come from, it's a universal cultural component that they have. And basically, it's how they interpret the world. Some eat meat, some don't. Some are wealthy, some are not. But those four components are really, really important. And especially, and, and this is a new, which I'm sharing with you, is that I work with a longevity center in Poland. It's one of the top longevity centers in the world. And they do biological markers and they do epigenetic markers, which I'll explain. So I've developed a questionnaire that identifies how close you come to those four components of, uh, of what uh, centenarians do. And then we correlate them with biological markers and epigenetic markers that are both genetic and epigenetic. And then we can, by doing that, we can reverse biological age. And it's not have to be with medications, some supplements, but not that. It's the way that you perceive the world, the, what in, in neuroscience, what's called a default mode. And this is why sometimes you could do meditation and yoga and all those things. And then within a few minutes, you're back into uh, into an alarm. Yeah. Because a default mode is what needs to be changed, not the external things that you do. So it's basically the general idea. Got it. So let's start here. Thank you. Um you talk about biosymbology, right? Things being biosymbolic, especially in the uh, context of culture. So, you know, work I do, I, I look up deeply at people's life history as a preparation for their life's work in the world, uh, particularly how our core wounds put us on a particular path of training and development uh, that ends up being a requirement for, for what we're here to contribute. Um, so talk to us a little bit about early childhood in the context of culture and what biosymbology is in the context of culture. 
Okay. Um, people talk about, for example, um, thoughts affect uh, your immune system, words affect your immune system, but nobody tells you why or how. Right. So you have to go back to the anthropology. So just very quickly, as you can see what I mean. We are basically, um, Homo sapiens have been around for 150,000 years, but language came about only about 50,000 years ago, and consciousness about 130,000. So we had consciousness, and we know we had consciousness because of the tools, and tools are 3 million years, but basically we started burying our dead about 130,000 years ago. Which is Not symbolic. only burying our dead, but burying them with, with special things and, and, and trinkets that they had. So that's the beginning of consciousness. You have to have cognition to be able to do that. What the so-called caveman didn't know past, present, future was a, a, a constant present. So you develop a consciousness. Then language comes around 50,000 years ago. So before, you had to go with your, with your senses. You smell a lion uh, 300 meters away, and, and you have a, a stress hormone response. Okay, so that's, you did that for many hundreds of thousands of years. Now, you learn language, and language says, there's a lion there 300 meters away, and the words become biosymbolic because they replace the senses. And hmm. then the brain has to learn the symbols, and the immune system has to learn to interpret the cultural brain. So this is why then, if I say to somebody, you're so stupid, and I shame them, you have molecules of inflammation as if there's some kind of a pathogen there. But if I say, you're so wonderful, you're so great, dopamine, endorphins, uh, oxytocin, all these things. So it's a biosymbolic system. So words are no longer inert. They never were. But now words have meaning and they have a psychoneurological consequence. So that's the idea of, of why I call it biosymbolic. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that word combo uh, biosymbolic, um, cause you know, how I think how we interpret our world is via symbol. Uh, but I, I've never considered it directly related to our biology and our, uh, you know, our, our, our biochemistry. Um, let's get into this. You talk about the archetypal wounds right? Three archetypal wounds and, and, and how they relate to our biochemistry. Um, so let's dive into that if you would. All right. And the reason you hadn't heard about it is because it hadn't been done. Uh, the biology has been, has been kept from a, from a distance to, to the, what I call the biosymbols, but the archetypal wounds, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's really a basic uh, component in my work is that just as I looked for centenarians and found what was needed to, to have a long life, I looked for ways that the culture would, would, would wound you emotionally. And I found that fortunately there are only three ways, but that's plenty. You can be abandoned, you can be shamed, or you can be betrayed. And interestingly, each of them has a temperature, has a biosymbolic response immunologically, and has implications with relationships, longevity, but I also found that each of them has an antidote. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I teach the antidote, but these things can't be done intellectually. It has to be done in a contemplative, experiential way. Otherwise, I would say um, 
Hey Jeffrey, don't don't be don't be depressed. What a pretty day. Okay, I'm not gonna hey, be depressed now. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, symbolically and it's 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 an embodiment. But that's the that's where the archetypal wounds come out. And every culture has them. They give it a different flavor, but every culture, and the reason is that the tribes want to keep you within the collective mm-hmm. uh, good. They want to keep you there. But then when you want to individuate, you no longer can serve the collectivism. And the way to keep you there or the way to control you is with one of the right. archetypal wounds. So you uh, so uh, you talk about each one having a immune response. Share with us, if you could, the immune response of shame, abandonment, and betrayal. Okay. Now that we know that the brain is biosymbolic and the immune system is biosymbolic, now I can talk about it. All right. The most primitive is abandonment. If you abandon a child, they die. The next one is shame, but you can only shame a child when they can identify themselves in a mirror. People will say, I can shame a one-year-old. No, you're scaring them. Shaming requires some cognition and embarrassment. And the most complex is betrayal because that's a tricking so going to abandonment, abandonment basically feels cold. And the way it feels cold is because your, your vascular system is constricting and you feel cold. And that constriction causes immunological um, deficiency because it, 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 it shuts down the immune system. And there's a correlation, not a, not a, a, a cause, but a correlation between the underimmunity and propensities for cancer, and, and uh, problems with uh, infections and underimmunity. That's the, the abandonment. Let me ask this. Oh, the shame, on. Let's stay you... on abandonment for just a minute. Yeah. So when I look, you know, p- part of what I look at with my clients around their wounding is what happened, how did they feel, uh, what did they crave, what did they do, what skills did they develop, and what beliefs did they adopt? Those are the primary places I'm looking. And with all of them, there is an adaptive response, right? I couldn't get my need met head on, so I needed to adapt to at least get a facsimile of my need met, right? So if I couldn't get love directly, but I could get praise when I achieved, well, now I'll become a higher achiever, for example. What's the adaptive response around the vascular system constricting and you getting cold? How does that help with abandonment, like from a physical survival standpoint? would be the purpose of it originally. Oh, the, the reason is that uh, the reason, and I'm glad you bring this up and that you work with your clients with that because I'll give you some other information on that. The reason that it, that, that you get cold is that the vascular system goes deep to, to protect you from wounds. It's, it's fight or flight. So it's getting a protection from, from if you get cut, then you, you don't bleed uh, to death uh-huh. as much unless you get a main artery. That's the first thing. But what happens though, and this is the part that's so important in relationships and so forth, is that you learn those wounds from the culture editors, people that have a lot of meaning in, in your life. And in many cases, those wounds are entangled with the concept of love. Mm-hmm. So at some point you adapt, but at another point, there's a dysfunction. And this is why you say people that say, I've been in f- five relationships and they all abandon me because there's an entanglement that says biosymbolically, love means mm-hmm. abandonment. And I have had I had a patient who had been abused by her husband many times, and 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 she had been abused by her father. So there was a, a betrayal and an abandonment and all that. So one day she comes in and she says, "I think my 
my husband is having an affair. I said, why? He hasn't beat me up in a mm. month. <laughs> you see how sad that is, but, but that's the conception that we have. And although we say, no, no, intellectually, no, I'm not going to do this. The fabric is there and that needs to be changed. You need to untangle the, uh, the love with the wounds in order for you to be able to love and so forth. Because another thing that happens is that, of course, self-esteem is affected in all three. So you get to certain levels, let's say in the adaptive, but you get to a point where it's too much and you begin to sabotage it and bring you back into misery, which is more, uh, it's less anxiety producing than, un than unknown joy. So they have to be entangled. They have to be cleaned up because the adaptive is good, but it also requires untangling it from the yeah. meaning of life. I mean, essentially to me, when I look at adaptive responses, they're necessary at the time. <laughs> And then they yeah. <laughs> they serve a purpose when they serve a purpose. And then later in life, you know, we don't seem to auto update and just go, oh, don't need that adaptive response anymore and stop doing it. The patterning is there. So we keep working out the patterning until we detangle the patterning. Um, so abandonment is cold. What's shame? Shame is hot. And shame, you notice that when people are ashamed, Flush. they turn red and they, they're hot. Okay, they flush. And what's happening is that their body is secreting molecules of inflammation as if there's some pathogen out there. So it's hot, and the main emotion that you feel is embarrassment. In abandonment, the main emotion is fear, isolation. In shame, is you, you want the earth mm -hmm. to swallow you. Uh, you. You want to become small. And, and then what's happening is the, the inflammation is what's causing the hotness. You notice that when there's inflammation, you yeah. touch it and it's hot. That's because of, uh, because of the inflammatory um, uh, molecules like uh, interleukins and so forth. So that, that's the, um, the second one. And the third, which is the most complex, is also hot. But look how interesting. It's hot rather than with fear, with anger. When you're, when you're betrayed, you, you're angry. And you can do it with a child. You can, a five-year-old, you can tell him, look, I have this iPhone here. I, I'll let you play with it if you do a little song for me. And then they do the song and say, no, you're not, you're not going to get it. You betrayed. They, they, they don't get embarrassed or abandoned. Yeah. They get angry. But look how interesting the psychoimmunology of it is. In both cases, you have constriction. In, uh, in the abandonment, you have constriction cold. In the, in the betrayal, you have constriction hot. Same hormones expressing one with anger and one with fear. And you have constriction on so both. So what are common illnesses associated with abandonment cold shame hot with embarrassment uh and betrayal hot with anger with anger yes well there, i have to overemphasize that these are correlation uh -huh, not right. causes but there's clinical correlation if you can if you can divide everything into hypoimmunity hyperimmunity or autoimmunity you would see that hypo is underimmunity, hyper is overimmunity, and auto is immunity against self. The uh, hypoimmunity would be illnesses like cancer, um, some kinds of infections. That would be hyperimmunity allergies. You're over-responding. Autoimmunities is like uh, anything with inflammation like fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, MS, those things. So then if you go back and you look at the, uh, the abandonment, there's a strong correlation between abandonment 
and um, skin problems or or some kinds of infections or cancer, mm -hmm. viruses, because you have an underimmunity specifically in that sense. With shame, it's very interesting. Shame, because of the inflammatory kind of concept or uh, expression, there's a tendency or a correlation with autoimmune illnesses. I have worked with many women who had fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, and 90% of them have some kind of um, shaming wound. Mm -hmm. it's, it's there. Because now the thinking is that, that chronic um, inflammation can confuse the immune system to a point where it becomes to do uh, auto, autoimmune kinds of uh, damage. And the third, with um, betrayal, there's a correlation between cardiovascular and strokes and things like that, mm -hmm. a correlation. So it's very interesting that uh, it, it's not causing it, but there's some strong clinical correlation with these things happening, which is saying if you're chronically uh, secreting molecules of, of, of inflammation, well, the, pro the propensity for an autoimmune illness related to a potential of family, it could be yeah. expressed. So that begins to give you an idea that how we learn to get yeah. sick. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, so I had I had a few people in mind uh, as I was listening to you pre preparing for this conversation. So one has ankylosing spondylitis, another fibromyalgia. So those would be correlated to shame. Yes. Yes. What about obesity or diabetes? And I'm curious about type one and type two. Well, it, it really depends because um, the type type one and type two are considered autoimmune to a certain degree. They, they you don't have the, uh, the 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 cells to produce the uh, the insulin and so forth, uh, and so that that would be related to more to the um, to the sh mm -hmm. to the shaming if you can mm -hmm. correlate them that way. And then obesity obesity is very interesting because obesity could be more related to issues with limit setting, and it could be from any of the three, actually. It's very interesting. Because obesity, and, and there are hormonal issues and so forth, but most of the, I call it food monal. It's, it's an abuse of food. And it's an abuse of food because somehow it has nothing to do with food. What you're doing is you're either protecting yourself or punishing yourself or doing something that comes from one of the wounds that said to you, if I gain weight, I can be protected from this. Or if I gain weight, I can pay for my sins. And unless you deal with the issues, and as you know now in, in biocognition, I don't deal with behavior. Behavior yeah. is a waste. I deal with the terrain that supports the behavior. So if you're trying to lose weight, I, I don't care what you eat, what you don't eat. I'm looking at the terrain that allows for the excessive dysfunctional behavior. And that's what we work on. Addictions, the same thing. Forget the how many lines of cocaine you do. What is the terrain? Because if you clean one up, it comes out some other way because you didn't yeah. clean up the terrain. Yeah. Uh, I want to go two places next. One, you talked about boundaries, especially around these different pieces. So I'm curious about boundaries and wounds and healing wounds. And then I want to hear a little bit about like, like okay, so what are some of the interventions how, how do we do this work? So let's go to boundaries first. <laughs> All right. Boundaries are learned. You have to go to developmental psychology and so forth to look at the boundary. You notice that, that children around three, they start saying no, no, no. And they learn the word no, and it, and it has power because they say no, and you stop. 
But what happens if you abuse that boundary? What happens if, you, if they say no and you beat them up or you abuse them sexually? What happens? There's no boundary setting. There's no psychosexual or psycho-emotional process going on. No biocognitive process that says, okay, no means something. So then they learn not to set good limits. And they learn, and, and getting back to your point, that some, most things have a, an initial function. You had to not have boundaries when you have a very powerful parent. But then later you're an adult and you still don't have boundaries. And that has to be learned because you didn't learn it when you needed to learn it. So that's the boundary component. You, you don't learn boundaries either because they were abused or because they never set limits. They said, mm -hmm. Do whatever you want. Just do what. And now, unfortunately, there's a lot of education that says, well, if you, um, if you feel happy getting a C, don't worry about getting a, a B or an A. And what is doing is saying to people, hey, look, I'm not going to prepare you for the world. Because you go to a corporation and they say, look, I, I want to produce whatever makes me happy. Yeah. You'll be fired. So <laughs> it's, 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 it's very naive because they're bringing in political correctness rather than science into, into the equation. So getting back to what you were saying, the good news in biocognition is that I don't do anything that doesn't have a way to fix it. Otherwise, I don't want to deal with it. So what I have found clinically and, and in my research is that each of the wounds, if you have a wound, if you have a, a dysfunction, there has to be some kind of antidote for the dysfunction. I mean, that's the yin-yang of yeah. things. That's how it is. So what I found is that each of the wounds has what I call an antidote, a consciousness antidote that reverses the damage. So when I talk about abandonment, commitment is the antidote to abandonment. And I'll, I'll explain them in a minute. Uh, for shame, honor is the antidote for shame. And for betrayal, loyalty is the antidote, but not to anybody. It's, a, it's commitment to self, loyalty to self, honor to self. And the reason is that if you're, you see yourself as a bioinformational field, when someone wounds you, they disempower you. It doesn't have anything to do with the person that is your interpretation of what the person did. So you have to come up with a new way to deal with it and with abandonment, commitment, commitment to self. And, and I'll explain a little later uh, as we go along. But basically, what you're doing is you're changing the bioinformational field. What is a practical application? All right. Let's say you have a, uh, an, a, a shaming wound. And in your corporate world, you go to a... To a corporate meeting, and the CEO, you're a little late, and the CEO says in front of everybody, oh, there you are. I can always count on you on being late. Late again. All right? And you notice that you have an overreaction. An overreaction is an indication that you're bringing the history of your wound into the moment. So at that moment, you stop. You know that your wound is ashamed, so you stop. You take a deep breath, and you ask yourself, what is the honorable thing that I need to do right now for me? And it could be uh, yes, I'm late, and I will, uh, I'll talk to you later about this. And then later, the honorable thing, you talk to the guy and say, look, uh, that's okay if, um, if you talk to me privately, but I'm, I'm a professional like you. So in order for you to get the antidotes to work, there always has to be some limit setting okay. because you have to change the reaction. This is where the boundaries comes in. There has to be limit yes. setting yes. for any of the antidotes. That's All right. right. Got That's it. right. Because they keep wounding you then. And, they, and you have to be brave enough to say, hey, look, if this is how it's going to be, I'm going to look for another job. Why? Because if you don't, the job will kill yeah. you or make you yeah. sick. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because 
For all of us, I think around what we want in life, there's risk taking, you know, uh, yes. whether it's something we want externally or whether it's how we want our world to be or how we want our uh, uh, biology to be or our biochemistry uh, to be. Uh, so there's a boundary for each one of these. Uh, so with shame, it's honor. With abandonment, it is commitment. commitment. And betrayal, it's loyalty. Uh-huh. Loyalty. So another example, because I think with examples and stories is the best way to get complex yeah. information and also for it to apply. So let's say there's an abandonment. And these could be little things that trigger it. Abandonment, you have, you're getting together with a friend for lunch and you, you say 12 o'clock is 12.15, is 12.20, and you're beginning yeah. to blow up. Well, you're bringing the abandonment. What you do, again, you take a deep breath to, to be aware, to bring it into awareness. Okay, I'm, I'm doing an abandonment <laughs> run here. What is a commitment that I need to make to myself now and set boundaries? The commitment would be I'm going to start eating, and when that person comes in, that's it. When that person comes in, I, I'll tell them, look, uh, I had to, I wanted to eat, so I, uh, whatever. Or, uh, look, next time you're late, call me. Or some kind of boundary to stop the abuse. I love that. And One of the things I always say with basically everybody in my life, including my clients, one of my top values is people that can stay in the conversation. So if something's not working, yeah. if you're mad at me, if I did something that didn't work for you, tell me first. Don't go talking to other people. Don't check out and disappear. Come to me, right? Because if we can't yes. do that, we can't have a relationship. There's no trust. There's no foundation of a relationship there. Um, and that piece of, okay, you're not going to run away. You're not going to peace out and, 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 and ditch the relationship because something stopped working. Um, let me ask this. So I can, in my mind's eye, see both what I might call macro and micro shaming experiences early in life and later in life. I can see uh, both gross and subtle ways that betrayal happens. Talk to me about the gross and subtleties around abandonment. Because there's you know, gross abandonment, I think, is easy for us to imagine, right? Giving, being given up for adoption, uh, you know, something like that. But what are the more subtle forms of abandonment, especially early in life? Some of the uh, abandonment, all the three wounds, but some of the abandonment wounds have to do with what we call in, in, in psychology vicarious, by watching it by either watching it being done to somebody else in your family, or abandonment could be your father is very successful, provides for everything, mm -hmm. but he's never there. He's emotionally not available. Implicitly, you're learning mm. abandonment. You're learning that to succeed, you have to be away from the family. So you learn that lesson. And if you ask, have you ever been abandoned? No, I've never been abandoned. Uh, and then you go deeper. Oh, yeah, my father was, uh, he was a, 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 a uh, professor and he would travel all the time. When did you spend time with him? Well, not very much. He gave me everything I needed. He was a great father. But you see, that is an abandonment wound. That's an implicit I abandonment so wound. I so appreciate that. That you're picking up. You know, when I, one of the wounds I've really 
looked at when I was a kid, my mom would fly off the handle in fits of rage uh, and then kind of collapse and usually nap for a couple hours and come back and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, this isn't me. My father didn't know how to deal with that. Uh, he was raised in a very emotionally cold household. So his solution was he bought a plot of land and started building us another house. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so from the time I was three to like five and a half nights and weekends after he'd go wake up at five in the morning, go off to work, be done by three 30, go to the job site, the, this land and literally by basically by himself, his father was a builder. So he grew up building houses, built this house, this 3,500 square foot home. Um, you know, yeah. but he was just not there. And then after that, he started traveling a ton for work and also wasn't there a bunch. But, you know, one of the pieces I, I discovered when I was doing deep work, the, the, the mom stuff was obvious, but the abandonment piece, I never saw it, you know, at first, because yeah. it was like the young part of me going, why isn't he here? Why isn't he doing his duty to protect me? You know? And that to me was the, both the abandonment and the betrayal, uh, kind of connected yes. to one another. Um, and it, and intellectually you say, I'll never do that, but it's in your yeah. fabric already. So you play it out, you look for cues. For example, people will say, well, why is it that, uh, uh, or ask why, why is it that, that children of alcoholics have a very high probability of, of finding alcoholics? Well, they don't go and say, are you an alcoholic or are you over drinking? But they look at the terrain of the alcoholic. What is the terrain of the alcoholic? Someone who is not very insightful in what's going on with them. Someone who doesn't have good limit setting. Someone who delays reinforcement. Those are the things. And you begin to see them early in the relationship. But you say, well, he's not drinking. So it, oh, she's not drinking. That's okay. But the terrain is there. Then eventually you could be a dry drunk. And you're getting abuse the same way as if you're drinking. That's how we pick it up because we have a selective mm -hmm. perception. It's not the law of attraction or anything like that. It's a selective perception that we have. If you want to buy uh, a, a Rolex watch, you see right. it all over the world. If you don't want to buy it, yeah. you don't see it. So we tend to attract or not attract. We tend to select what we have a preconception of. I like of to think about it. And without knowing it. Yeah, go ahead. Without knowing, what we do is we we look for the terrain. Yeah, we look for the terrain. Um, if, if let's say abandonment, abandonment, you start a new relationship, and your partner or the, your potential partner is great. They're not abandoning anything, but every once in a while they're late, and they don't apologize for being late. It's not an issue for them. Oh, I was late. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sorry. And, and and you look for a pattern. You begin to see. Wait a minute. There's some indications here that. Uh, now, another one of abandonment, abandonment is they have a real difficult time accepting gratitude. They have a real problem with, with gratitude. So then if you don't have gratitude, you never look at the totality of the relationship when there are problems. You always look at what have you done for me lately so I can abandon you. If you have a relationship that, that's been good and then you have some adversity, okay, let me look at the totality of the relationship and see if it's worth it. But if you don't have... If the meter's not recording with the gratitude, then, well, so what? You know, you've been here for 20 years, but now you did this to me, so I'm out of here. Abandonment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It was very subtle. The, the terrain concept yeah. is very subtle. No, I really appreciate this concept of terrain because, you know, we're all ecosystems, <laughs> you know, inside yes. of ecosystems. Uh, even when I look at like uh, people that are experts around habits and, you know, creating better habits and whatnot, the real experts never talk about behavior. They all talk about terrain, right? Uh, the terrain yes. of your psychology, the terrain of... Uh, uh, how is, is, is your environment set up for the thing you say you want to do? Um, so talk to me a little bit about the, like, how do you work with people around introducing the behavioral, uh, excuse me, not the behavioral, but the, the, the antidotes to shame, abandonment, betrayal? Well, the first thing is uh, not to blame. And the first thing is to let people know that they were very brilliant in adjusting to a dysfunctional situation because that's the only way they could survive. So knowing that, what we look for is not how you messed up, or, but what are you using that is no longer mm -hmm. serving you well? It's no longer, it's not functional anymore. And in fact, we have what I call a survival override that if you're doing something for survival, it's not going to kill you. But when it's no longer survival, it has a critical mass I and you get sick. That. That's so true. So knowing that, yeah, uh, knowing that, then you know, okay, now it had a function, but daddy's not there anymore and you're still not setting limits. Why? Because we have to go back and create the consciousness that you could have had when you were little, the consciousness of honor or, uh, or commitment or, or loyalty. We can learn that. But the neural maps that you learn, we do a technique that I call the theater of change, where I have people go into a contemplative state and I teach them how to rerun it and all that. But then the brain doesn't create neural maps that way. It creates very, very weak neural maps. Uh, you, can, you can talk to somebody, for example, uh, with a functional MRI where you can see that what the brain is doing in real time. And you can create ideas and you see the neural maps coming together, but they're very weak. The way that you support them let's say we work on a particular issue of abandonment with you, then you bring moments when you were committed and you embody that from your archives. And not only that, for the next few weeks, for the brain to create a neural maps, you act in a committed consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then the neural maps get stronger and the others get weaker and weaker. And then you have, a, you have rather than abandonment consciousness, you have commitment consciousness. And that's what I do with fibromyalgia. Uh, and, and we're beginning to test now in, in Poland. Clinically, I can tell you that honor is anti-inflammatory, clinical. But we're going to be testing it now, looking at interleukins and other things to actually look at how you can actually reduce inflammation by honor consciousness. I so appreciate that. All right. Uh, one more piece, and then I kind of want to move into your journey. How, if somebody's listening to this going, okay, these three archetypal wounds of abandonment, shame, betrayal... How do I know which one I'm running? To 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 know which okay, to know which which antidote to introduce. In, in my first book, The Mind Body Code, I talk about that and I give specific right. methods of doing it. And and talking about that, we know that there's a a, a genetic code, the genomes, and but when consciousness evolved, some evolutionary biologists and, 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 and others and myself believe that there's also a mind code. The mind code is not the same as the gene code. 
The mind code is more like the epigenetic code. So you have to know that. You have to practice it and learn it. And, and in the book, I explain each of the other methods. But basically, the idea is that you have a technique that I use where you go into the wound, you embody it, you clean it, you go into the uh, an antidote, you embody it, you enhance it, and then you begin to practice it. Because movement is another way of creating uh, right. neuromaps. Got it. Um, and I, 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 I think you would also say, or imagine you would say, you can also, as, as a starting place, look at the terrain that you were raised in, in terms of who were my cultural editors, yes. how did they do my cultural yes. editing, what tools did they employ, how did I perceive what was happening and interpret it, and how did I then start to build kind of my own ecosystem around shame, abandonment, or betrayal? Um, yeah. Very much. And also, most important is the co-authors that you created in your theater to maintain the dysfunction. Uh -huh. You have to look at the co-authors. Uh, because if, let's say, you, you're no longer ac accepting co-authors that abandon you, well, you're going to have to set limits with those people. Otherwise, they continue to be the demons that, that, uh, that yeah. run inside. So you have to go to the co-authors and begin to see, is this a co-author that I can keep in my journey? Or is this a co-author that I need to get rid of? You know, it's so funny. Uh, so I do this thing with clients uh, around, uh, well, I do it primarily around their clients, but I've also done it with them in the whole area of their life. I just do a, a what I call a four square, four squares, uh, four boxes, one, two, three, four. Uh, ones are people that enhance your life. Uh, twos are people that are relatively neutral. Uh, threes are people that drain you and fours are people that are destructive. So for example, in business, <laughs> a four is somebody that uh, might slander your name publicly, right? Uh, that's a four, that's destructive. Threes are the people that complain and need all sorts of extra help and support and they just drain you and your team. Twos, they're good, right? They don't necessarily elicit your genius and your best work, but they're good. And ones yeah. are people that elicit your greatest skills that are like, oh my God, I just love being around them. I love working with them. And, you know, I primarily do it with them around their clients because one of the things I find is that as we grow in our own journeys as leaders, we have to keep editing out you know, changing who the co-authors are around our lives. And those aren't just our family and friends. It's also our clients when we're working with folks in, in business, right? Um, and that can be so like, you know, okay, wow, I've got to stop working with some of these people. They're not supporting the life I say I want to live and the work I'm here to do. Um, yeah, go ahead. And, and, and in your world, it, it, I see what you're saying about our parallel way of thinking in your world which is very compatible that in in the in the quadrant of uh the neutrals and the positives those are the people that you create what i call the subcultures of wellness to support mm -hmm. your new behaviors because if you don't have that you lose all the therapeutic gains even in anti-aging uh, ellen langer at harvard a colleague has done some things on her own and some of, of my own of actually being able to reverse age within a week 
But initially, when they, when she was doing it initially, when I was doing it, we didn't do the the cultural uh, uh, support, and within six weeks, I would lose mm -hmm. all the therapeutic gains. So it's very important when you're changing something, you're still very vulnerable. But you have to have somebody that if you say, I just did something that was brilliant. Oh, really? Tell me about it. As opposed to, oh, don't yeah. be conceited. Yeah. And that's extremely important in maintaining therapeutic I, gains. I so appreciate you sharing that. So how did you get into this? Let's talk about your journey. Um, <laughs> where did this start? Did you start in, you know, by going to medical school? Like where did... Yeah, tell, how did you get here? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, in, in culture, uh, I'm Spanish-French. <clears throat> my grandfather was an engineer, and my mother wanted me to be an engineer. So I said, okay. And uh, when I was a kid, what are you going to be? I'm yeah. going to be an engineer. But then I, I started engineering, and it was terrible. I hated it. It wasn't my brain. So I went back to my mother, and I said, um, look, I'm not going to be an engineer. And she said, well, do anything except psychology or medicine. <laughs> I said, okay. So then I started medical school in Spain, Madrid. First year, second year. Then the riots. They start the riots. So they closed, the medical school was the most radical. So I, I couldn't go to school for a few months. So I go to psychology. Again, psychology. So finally I said, hell with it. I'm going to psychology. I'm going to drop medicine. So I went into neuropsychology and became a neuro. Uh, clinical neuropsychologist. But then I thought about, uh, well, yeah, neuropsychology is fine and everything. But I, after a while, I got tired of looking at, I was excited. Oh, because if you have this kind of in the broker part of the brain, you're going to have this type of aphasia. It's interesting. But after a while, you're dealing with people that don't want to change strokes and problems. And it gets depressing. So I thought, no, I want to look at the causes of health. What are the causes of health? Not the causes of aging and the causes of, of getting old. But because of my training, I thought well, it's got to be genetics, and that's when it turned around. But the other thing is I found the power of culture. I grew up in, a, um, in New York and Miami. In New York, I was, I was living uh, as a child in, a, uh, in an Irish-German neighborhood. There weren't a lot of Spanish at the time. So one day I go to my mother because I begin to see the cultural uh, admonitions and things, and I said to my mother, um, you know, I think I want to dye my hair blonde. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, do it if you want. If you want to look like a clown, go ahead. <laughs> that took care of it. But you see, it's, I, I thought, wait a minute, this is culture. And in my culture, I don't have to be blonde. In this culture, I have to be blonde. So I started then getting excited and, and, and very interested in what culture is all about. And some cultures you're great, and other cultures you're not. So those were the foundational kinds of things that got me into what I am. Then I was fortunate enough to meet George Solomon, and George was my mentor in psychoneurology. And I thought, not only is this exciting, but thoughts and emotions can affect your immune system and, and your nervous system and so forth. So it came from that. And then I developed an expertise in, in cultural psychoneurology and uh, epigenetics yeah. and things like that. Uh, I find that around you know, people being change agents there, there's often people that to say, I'm not going to deal with the existing culture or system. Uh, I'm not going to deal with the medical establishment. I'm just going to go over here and do my thing and usher in a new consciousness. And those that want to hear it come along. And then there are those that are more like, no, I, I am here to help change the system that I come from. Is do you find that you sit more in one camp or another? 
Yes, I, I'm in the integrative. Uh, if you go to alternative medicine, you can't go to a shaman to tell you that uh, be one with the universe mm -hmm. when you have a fracture mm -hmm. or you have a heart attack. You have to go to a medical doctor. But medicine has some limitations. Medicine is great with acute issues, but not so great yeah. with systems issues. They don't cure anything that's systemic or very few. So you have to integrate the best of reductionist medicine, the best of functional medicine, the best of shamans and anything. You bring it together. And that's what my field is. My field, the, the way that I think it works so well is because you have psychoneurology, cultural anthropology, psychology, and all of that, it, it's, we're too complex to have one system yeah. explain everything. It, yeah. it just doesn't work. So you have to bring, you notice I brought anthropology, cultural psychoneurology, depending on what you need. So I'm more of an integrative uh, person rather than, than an isolationist, yeah. uh, either or. Have you, when it comes to the medical community, <laughs> from, the, from the folks that I know in the world of medicine that come from the world of medicine, oftentimes the world of medicine doesn't want to hear stuff like this. What's been your experience around that and how have you navigated it? There's some that are never going to hear what you have to say, no matter what, because they're so reductionistic and they think they know everything. That's what I call arrogant uh, pseudoscience. That's not science. A real scientist will say, show me. A technician will say, I can only believe in what I can measure or the extension of my senses can measure. That's it. That's a, a real scientist says, well, show me. And then the other thing about it is that I speak their language. Uh, for example, I went to a conference. Uh, I was presenting a paper and this uh, physician, a cardiologist, he says, ah, oh, that's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. That's just, uh, that's just psychologists don't know anything. What do you know about the heart and on and on? And I said, okay, look, let's take a look at it. You're being skeptical and you're being a bit uh, toxic right now. Your IgAs, which are some of the antibodies, are going down right now. And he said, no shit, <laughs> really? <laughs> so not only that, but if you want to look at, at the heart and you and you broken heart or that, now there's a syndrome called the broken heart syndrome. Takotsubo, they call it which means that if you have a broken heart, there are 60% of the people will actually, their left ventricle will look like what the Japanese call a trap for, um, um, uh, for squids and for, and for uh, other kinds of animals. And it's called takotsubo. And that's how the ventricle looks. And then it's, it resolves itself without any damage within a few weeks. Broken heart syndrome. It's not your toe, it's your heart. So yeah. it's biosymbolic. So if you speak the language, the ones who are intelligent and flexible yeah. will hear you. The ones who are not, no matter what you give them, it'll be like the uh, the Copernicus effect. No, look, there's a telescope here in Galileo. It's a telescope that the, that the Earth is not. No, no, no. The Earth is the yeah. center of the universe. You can't yeah. deal with yeah. people like that. Um, I'm curious if you've looked at this at collective levels at all. Like, you know, do you see that certain illnesses, okay, let me back up and say this. We've all heard things like, oh, the Mediterranean diet, because they live this way. Or, oh, uh, you know, people in India have a lot of turmeric and they don't have the same inflammation that we have and whatnot. Hearing you, okay, that may be a piece of it. What about the cultural piece, right? So I'm curious if you've looked even if it's anecdotally, just because of your own curiosity, 
around cultural patterns in different communities or countries and the collective health impacts you see in different uh, in different locations? Yes, that's a, that's a brilliant question. And, and, and I'll tell you, those things are necessary, but not sufficient. They're not sufficient. And, and with another story, I can tell you how this came about. I, I went to Cuba to look at some centenarians. So I, I started asking anthropologically. I do ethnographic. I don't do psychological testing or anything like that. And um, so I asked this woman who was 102, instead of saying, what are your rituals, which are very important, I, I asked her in an anthropological way to not bias it, what do you do on a regular basis that has meaning for you, that has some kind of identity that you look forward to? She said, immediately said, oh, I have a shot of rum before I go to sleep. And I thought, ah, Cuban rum. It's got to be the quality. See, reductionistic. Next day, I go to another centenarian. I said, what do you do? The same thing. He said, uh, the moment I wake up, I have a cigar. Ah, Cuban cigar and rum, that does it. It's the ritual. The ritual is what has that immunological enhancement. And they never abuse the rituals. When I asked them, how many shots do you have of rum? One. Why? That's all I enjoy. The cigar? One or two. That's all I enjoy. So they don't abuse it. So the ritual has, is one of the causes how of How is that so? How do rituals support our health? Well, because you're born in the fabric. Right? In an example, the... Uh, the horsemen of, of the Caucasus and, and the Georgian part of uh, what used to be the Soviet Union, they eat a lot of um, a lot of dairy, and many of them have obstructive uh, arteries without any symptoms. I'm not suggesting you do that, but there's some people that eat a lot of meat, and, and so they override. Some of them are hypertensive, and it overrides because w what you're learning is that it's good to eat dairy. So therefore. The French paradox, the French eat more fat, they drink more wine, and they have longer longevity. The Italians the same way because they have the, it's contextual. It's very important, contextual. The context will determine how much insulin you're going to need, how much pain medication you're going to need. Quite a bit of research in that area. So if you are born in that concept, and the ritual means this is who I am in this world, and this feels good. For example, if you're a vegan... Out of fear, it's not going to help you as much as if you're a McDonald's mm -hmm. out of joy. So it, it, the, the joy and the embodiment and the cultural components is what helps you sometimes even override things. Now, you don't want to abuse it because no, nobody should abuse it. But what I found is that it's not what I thought. It's a point that you brought up that is so brilliant that it's, it's not just uh, the turmeric or this or that. It's the ritual that you have with the food that you have with people, the things that you do with people. In, uh, in, in Spain and Italy and uh, in other countries, uh, children, not children, but maybe adolescents, will drink wine with a family because it's a food. So you're not waiting to be 21 so you can abuse it and get drunk. So all those things are very important in the culture. So it's more important your perception of what you're doing. For example, centenarians believe that everybody loves them. Everybody loves them. Believing that you're being loved is more important than mm. being loved. I love that. Immunologically. Believing that you are loved is more important than being loved. Yeah. And that's the second cause of health. What my what uh, George Solomon called healthy narcissism. <laughs> and healthy narcissism is what I propose. Another example. 
the Cuban who drank, who smoked the cigar, they gave him a party after after we talked. Because everywhere they are, they, they're treated like like uh, superstars. So there are a lot of women there, and he comes up to me and he says, "Have you noticed how the women are looking at me? They're all in love with me." Uh huh. That's narcissism. But then inclusive narcissism. He said, "How you have you noticed how beautiful they all are?" He includes them in the narcissism. That's healthy narcissism. Now, superstars that don't believe that they're loved and there are millions of people who love them, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're not getting the oxytocin and the things that you get if you believe that yeah. you're being loved. I so appreciate, you know, after all the years of working with the folks I've worked with, if there's one, one thing that I see is the difference between a lot of the folks I work with and some of the folks I work with is did they believe they were loved as a kid? Because the ones that didn't believe they were loved, oh, they just don't have the same level of resilience that others do. They get seem to get hung yes. up on stuff. And as much as they work at it, like it just keeps hanging them up, you know, and they, they seem to stay stuck more readily. It's harder for them to get out of ruts. Uh, to accomplish the things they say they want to accomplish. And even when I've worked with people who've had massively abusive homes, uh, really destructive childhoods, if there was at least one person in their life, an uncle, a grandpa, somebody, where they go, well, that person loved me. I was loved by somebody radically different. Yes. You don't, you're absolutely right. You don't need a lot of people. I'll give you an example of, of an extreme. I was working with this patient. I, I call them wellness students now, but they were patients when I was in private practice. She has been sexually abused for years. And we were doing the technique of getting to somebody who loved you, somebody who, somebody who gave you validation, someone who gave you a sense of worthiness. Couldn't find anybody. Her problem was that uh, she lived with her father, the mother abandoned. And while children are going home thinking about what kind of snack they're going to have, she was feeling about her father who was disabled, how she could avoid the father. Look at what kind of hell mm -hmm. you go into. So we kept working and working until finally, and you do this under the contemplative that, that uh, theater change. And she said, okay, okay, I remember now I was, at, I was walking home and there was, uh, it was snowing and this little lady, two homes from me that I never knew, she called me in. I went there. She gave me chocolate and cake. I felt so good. Within a week, I left the house. I went away. I ran away at 15. No more abuse. Look at the power. So what, you have to, what happens is that since you're not loved, your meter of love doesn't pick up on the things that actually mm -hmm. you were loved. Mm -hmm. The meter's not there. So she, it doesn't record. But if you get him back to the recording... Then they go in this, okay, now embody how you felt when that woman did that to you. And this is how you're going to function when you set limits I with love people. That. I love that. An embodiment. That. All right. Uh, if you have a vision for the future, your hope for how your work helps change this world, like what's the vision you have? What's the hope you have? The most important thing is to be aware of the power that the culture has, mm -hmm. that you're in a fishbowl without knowing it, and you function with a fishbowl, 
and the medical profession and the theologicals and all, they're all within the fishbowl. So, for example, in, in, in Germany, there's a higher probability of an EKG that they do to be seen as pathological. In, uh, in France, they overuse the medications for uh, liver. In the United States, an, an overuse of depression. Uh, in Germany, uh, it has to do with uh, what they call heart insufficiency. So each of them has a way of looking at the world. And my function is to get people to get out and become outliers, to individuate. And then you pay the price. But if you have the tools, the price is Beautiful. well worth it. Awesome. Thank you. How can people learn more about you and your work? I'm, uh, my, the easiest way would be biocognitive.com. Biocognitive, I have to make up the world, bio, the word, biocognitive.com, my website. Also, there's a lot of, I have over 200 free videos, of course, on um, YouTube, uh, Dr. Mario Martinez. And of course, I have two bestsellers, The Mind Body Code, The Mind Body Self, you can get at Amazon or anywhere. Um, but also, I'm going to be doing a course of, with, uh, with Shift Network, uh, a seven-week course explaining and teaching how to change consciousness to reverse your uh, your age. And one last thing I want to tell you, which is which is very hopeful, uh, with the center that I worked with in uh, in Poland, they do epigenetic, which uh, is a way of looking at what is your biological age. And so the director said, "Okay, you're doing all this kind of work. Let's check your your biological and your chronological age." And they did. And he said, you know, you're going to be a centenarian. Your biological age is 21 years younger than your chronological. And that's what matters. You could be 50. If your biological age is 30, you're 30. That's it. That's how your cells are aging. And the good news is you can reverse that. And that's what I'm going to be teaching so in this course. So good. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much. It's been just such a delight being in this conversation. You're welcome. And, and uh Thank you for your work because you're a thought leader also. And we, you're right. We're right in tune with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right, my friend. Until next time. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening in. If this conversation was powerful, if it stirred your soul or inspired your journey, then be sure to share it with a friend. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to this podcast and text that link right now to a friend that you think would be inspired by this episode. And if this is your first time here, be sure to click that subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review so I can get to know you and your thoughts better. To learn more about the work I do with emerging and established paradigm changers, go to thecourageousmessenger.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope to see you in the next episode.